We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, today. Uh, and, you know, today's a big day for families. And no one cares about families more than our moms do. And this is their day. Families, as uh, we discover, are a mixed blessing, but they truly are a blessing. And today we contemplate what it means for us, each of us who f- have faith in Jesus, to be members hey, of God's family. So four verses from Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we see here in verse 3 of our text a call to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has blessed us. We who are Christians, we who are believers we're told, have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then for the next 10 verses, Paul goes on to detail or to specify some of those particular blessings. And this Mother's Day morning, I want us to look at the relationship to which God has appointed us and then at how God managed to do this. First off then, the plain statement of verse 5, that God has predestined us to the, what he calls here, the adoption as sons. Now think about that with me. How does it strike you to hear such a verse as that? What impact does it make on you, if you trust in Christ, to hear that God has chosen to adopt you as his very own daughter or his very own son? Well, if you're like me, if you're someone who grew up in the church or you've been in the church for many years, I think there's a tendency for us to hear those words in sort of a ho-hum fashion and just move on. Oh, yeah, we're, we're sons of God. We know that. Next verse. But when you stop to think on this for very long, when you let your mind and your heart feel the weight of what you read here, you're staggered by the idea. I wonder what it must be like to hear this for the first time. I I wonder how it must sound to the ears of someone completely unexposed to gospel realities to understand the the, the height of God's love and acceptance of it. Why, this is astounding. This is miraculous. This is something no one would even dare to claim if the Word of God itself did not tell us that it was so. So no wonder we're supposed to bless God for what He has done for us. It says He appoints us to be adopted into His family. And what an ocean of grace we have here to swim in and today to bathe our souls in. So consider what it means to be adopted into God's family. For one, it means that you obviously, if you're adopted into His family, you were not born into God's family, right? There are only two ways to to get into a family. You're born into that family or you're adopted into that family. And if you are a child of God today, which one of those two occurred for you? Were you born into the family 
or adopted into the family? And some of you aren't, aren't yelling out the answer because you think it might be a trick question. But it's not. The answer is that you are adopted into God's family. It's assumed in Ephesians that you would understand this general idea. It's assumed that no one would make any claim of being born a son or a daughter of God. Uh, it, it's assumed that such a notion as that would be totally unthinkable. But 21st century, the, the century in which we are now living, has witnessed a number of unthinkable things. But I've never met anyone yet who claimed to be a God. Have you? Probably not. I tell you what, though, there's another belief just as anti-scriptural as that, which is really enormously popular in our day and age. That's the belief in the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. This is the notion that we are all brothers and sisters. We have even had so-called Christian theologians argue that that idea is in fact the essence of the Christian religion, when in fact it is actually far from it. But the Bible does not teach that God is the Father of all humanity. It affirms that our planet indeed is inhabited by two races of humans. There are the lost and there are the found. There are the sheep and there are the goats. I don't know why goats get such a bad rap. I kind of like goats, but in the Bible, they're not uh, the favorable side of the equation. Uh, there is wheat and there are tares. There's the cursed and there's the blessed. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are children of light and children of the darkness. Obviously enough, if everybody is a child of God, if we are by nature children of God, then to speak of God adopting anyone becomes meaningless and really nonsensical. But the Bible says otherwise. If you go on to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, it actually says this, We all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, uh-oh, children of wrath, even as the rest. Now notice the inclusive elements in that verse. We were all children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. And these he calls the rest, and they remain children of wrath. Um, amazingly, and I think a testimony to the human capacity to deceive ourselves, it is Jesus who often gets credit for this talk about the fatherhood of God uh, being relative to every human being on the planet. And that occurs, I suppose, because Jesus did indeed revolutionize our talk about God when he so consistently referred to God as his Father. But did Jesus teach that God was everyone's Father? Not at all. For example, John chapter 8, verse 41. He says to the Jewish leaders, You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come forth from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. It goes on. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Uh-oh. Well, that, that sounds like uh, something you'd expect to hear from one of those uh, narrow-minded, nasty, born-again types you run into. Yeah, it, it's that kind of thing. But it is the Son of God who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended and reigns as Lord, who said this very thing. And if you intend to follow him... I suggest you 
adopt his understanding of reality. We are not by nature God's children. We are fallen. We are rebellious. We are proud sons of Adam. And even here he suggests we are sons and daughters of the devil himself. Uh, We don't like that. We don't like that at all. And there's only one way out of God's family, and that is to be adopted into God. I'm sorry, there's only one way out of the devil's family, and that's to be adopted into God's family. 1 John 3 and verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there be only two spiritual families in the world, and they are set before you in that verse. You see the description of each. In which do you find yourself this morning. Do you practice righteousness as God defines righteousness in his word? Do you love your brothers and and your sisters? Well, pastor, uh, uh uh-huh. You know, I, I, I I was born and raised in a Christian home. I've been in church all of my life. I don't know if it's really fair to say, hang on a second, hang on a second. Who was Jesus calling the sons of the devil there in John 8? Who was it? These were the Jewish spiritual leaders. These were the religiously proud folks. They came from the best Jewish homes. These were not MS-13 gang members that he was speaking to. So you young people here, you may think everything is okay with your soul because of the family in which you are born, your mom, your dad, they're sound believers in Christ. Listen up, it doesn't work that way. You don't get born into the family of God that way. Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God. He's the only one who is by nature God's child. The rest of us can only get into his family by means of adoption. And that is true of the children of believers as much as it is of anyone else. So one of the most popular illustrations of what it means to be born again is that of the, uh, of the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. You know how that works, right? So here we have this earthbound, slow, crawling, upholstered worm who one day forms a cocoon out of which it later emerges as a what? As a lovely, dipping, dying, flying, soaring butterfly. What a glorious transformation that is. And a lovely picture of what God does in making men and women new creations in Christ. But notice what that happens, what happens when that butterfly goes on to reproduce and have babies of her own. The butterfly will lay her eggs, and after some time of anticipation, what comes out? Little fluttering, soaring butterflies? Oh, no. What comes out of those eggs? How disappointing is this? Creepy, crawly little worms who start all over again as earthbound, slow, pitiful creatures. Now, That's the way it is with us as well. You don't get into God's family because your mom and dad are in God's family. God doesn't have any spiritual grandchildren, is the old saying. You must be adopted yourself into God's family. So consider this. Think about this. What has God saved you from? 
In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that we might be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. And I tell you, what we read today is the height of God's love. We are made (laughs) children of God. And it does not get any higher or better or more wonderful than that. That's the highest expression I can think of of the love of God. The depth of God's love is is demonstrated to me by what God saves us from. He has taken ugly, rebel children, children indeed of his enemy, and brought us into his family. Now, years ago, I, I read in Reader's Digest an article about Pat Williams and his remarkable family. Now, Pat Williams is a remarkable guy. He's a speaker and a writer, and he was the general manager of not one but two NBA franchises, most notably the Orlando Magic, where he was the founding general manager of that franchise. Uh, He's got a great testimony, uh, part of which uh, is his story about his family. Pat and Jill eventually had 14, I'm sorry, 18 children, 18, 14 of whom were, uh, were adopted from other countries. Adopted, why? Because the Williams felt that they needed some extra kids around the house? Is that what their motivation was? Hardly. They were adopted by parents who loved them sight unseen and wanted to provide for them what they did not have in their home countries, wanted to give them a family marked by love and by care and by discipline and instruction and all of those things that a loving parent can give. Think of uh, Daniela Williams, one of the kids in that picture. She's 13 years old, living now in Orlando, Florida, the home of Christian, wealthy parents in a fantastic family with a bunch of brothers and sisters. And where did Daniela come from? Well, they found her on the streets of Sao Paulo, Brazil, where she had no parents, no education, No particular love, no hope for her future except in God. But Daniela, like every true Christian, was predestined unto adoption. Now think about what that means for her and for us. We get to become the children of God. Westminster's uh, Shorter Catechism, question 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And I'm convinced that we will spend our forever counting those, naming those particular privileges of being the child of God. What are some of them, these privileges of our adoption? Well, to begin with, we get the family name. And with it, we are given access to all the wealth and all the power of our Father. What is greater still is that we have access even to the Father Himself. That's an extraordinary thing. We find in Him our relationship with Him. We find right there our comfort and our strength, our instructor, our trainer. We fall into the blessing of His caring discipline and His guidance. We become heirs of the Father, joint heirs of Jesus, our big brother. In every way, our lives are enriched and they are made new when God names us for Himself. Sometimes I have read stories of adoption and I wonder how parents can willingly 
open up and dramatically disrupt their lives by taking an orphan child, often children that come with special needs, both physical and emotional. But an even greater mystery is how could God, how could a holy, perfect God receive into his family and take his children, the likes of you and me? This is the same God who is so grieved by human sin that uh, his first created man, Adam, that he casts the man and his wife out of the garden, out of the place of his presence and blessing. How can this God now take unto himself a man like, well, like the Apostle Paul, a man like me, a woman like you? And we're given the answer right away in verse 5 of our text. Look back there with me. When we read the phrase, through Jesus Christ. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And those little words, through Jesus or in Jesus, they're not added there for poetic effect. They are essential to the line of thought. And, that, and they answer the uh, obvious question, how does God accept us into His family? In love, He predestined us to adoption as children through Jesus Christ. And those three words remind us that we have no benefit of soul that does not somehow connect back to the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. If we sit here today as the children of God, we do so because of what Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Simple verse, great to remember. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So we're reminded he died in our place. He suffered for our sin. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And we had to be redeemed before we could be adopted into God's family. God could not take into his holy family children that are still covered by their sin. God's love does not negate God's holiness. Sin could not just be overlooked by a holy God. There must be a satisfaction of the law. There must be a punishment of sin before there can ever be an adoption as sons. But the word of Christ tells us that there indeed was. And so Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, the end game that we might receive the adoption as sons. So look closely at that, and you will see the connections there between redemption and adoption, right? They're a package deal. God's plan was to adopt, but what had to come first, our sin had to be dealt with. We had to be redeemed by the Son so that we could be adopted by the Father. And this will explain why at every point in Ephesians 1, we are reminded that every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. See it again, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's the next two words? Say it with me. In Christ. Just as He chose us, say it with me. In Him. That's right. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Say it with me through Jesus Christ to himself, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, say it with me, in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Well, that's a reference to Christ once again. The benefits that we have are always found in Christ. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the only begotten of God, and we are to be God's 
And if we're to be God's beloved ones, if we're to be God's children, we must be joined to Christ and be covered by His righteousness. Okay. One of my uh, favorite stories is told by Ray Stedman, a West Coast pastor of previous generation, I guess. Uh, And Stedman grew up in Montana, uh, where they had a lot of sheep farms. You ever seen any sheep farms in Montana? You Montana people over here, yeah? They had a lot of sheep farms in Montana, I'm told. And and Stedman says that uh, spring was the time when the mother sheep would give birth. Uh, But spring in Montana, as you hear, our weather here is not particularly great, right? Some of our snowbirds are here this morning going, why am I here? but uh, spring in Montana, I'm told, can be uh, quite, quite brutal, even as late as this uh, time, time of year. You've got snow uh, three and four feet deep, and uh, these mother sheep are giving birth, if you can imagine, Mom, giving birth in those kinds of uh, conditions. And when they give birth in that kind of weather, uh, understandably, a lot of the moms would die in childbirth, and a lot of the babies that were born would also die. And as a result, the sheep farmers found themselves with uh, mothers with no babies and babies with no mothers. And so you would think, well, here's a solution to that. You take the babies with no mothers and bring them to the mothers with no babies and uh, pair them up and everything will be okay and the babies will be taken care of. Uh, But with sheep, it's not so simple as that. I'm told if you take a little orphan lamb and put it with a mother ewe, that mother will immediately sniff it all over and then sort of shake her head as if to say, no, that's not the family odor right there. Uh, And uh, she'll butt that little baby away and have nothing to do with it. But the clever sheep uh, herders decided to try a a little trick on the moms, and they would take the, um, the dead baby lamb, and they would shear it and take its fleece, is that what you call it? And they would tie it onto the orphaned baby lamb and then send it out to connect with that mother sheep. And what did they discover? The mother sheep would smell the baby lamb, recognize the smell of her family odor, and accept it and nurse it as her own. Well, think about that. What has happened when such a thing as that occurs. The orphan lamb has been accepted in the beloved, right? It has been adopted through the death of the begotten son, and maybe you can follow the parallels. In the gospel, we're told that there came a time when the lamb of God lay dead on our behalf, and God took us, clothed us (coughs) with his righteousness, his acceptability, his dearness and nearness to the Father. They became our dress, our covering, and thus we are adopted and accepted into God's family through and in Jesus Christ. Which brings up the subject of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Do you know the story of Mephibosheth? Maybe we can call him Mephi for short. I think you should. We read of him in for the first time in 2 Samuel 24, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. But on one day, Mephibosheth lost his father and his grandfather, and he lost something else too, and that was his mobility. The nurse caring for him in her haste to get out of town dropped young Mephibosheth, 
in such a way that he uh, became disabled. His legs were fractured underneath him, and he never recovered and was never able to walk. Now, we don't hear about Mephibosheth again until 2 Samuel chapter 9, years now after David has become the king of Israel, replacing Mephibosheth's grandfather Saul. And having established himself in power and having defeated his enemies, David comes to this point in 2 Samuel 9 where he says, Is there anyone yet left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, This was a highly unusual inquiry by David. It was the custom of new kings in those days and for many centuries when they overthrew the previous monarch to systematically destroy every male in that monarch's family and thus eliminate any opposing claimants to the throne. But David, you'll recall, had this wonderful relationship with Jonathan the prince. They were great friends, and so David asked the question, are there any of the descendants of Saul, the father of Jonathan, left that I might show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake. And he was informed about this disabled boy named Mephibosheth. So in verse 5, David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now you think about this. Here is Mephibosheth, the only surviving male descendant of the house of Saul. The custom of kings would have him dead. His grandfather had tried to murder David, the present king, not once, but many times. And now David is king, and he calls for the grandson of Saul to be brought to him. What do you think Mephibosheth was thinking this was going to be about? A tour of the palace? Probably not. Verse 6, we read on. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephi, and he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. And again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me. I love that. Mephi had an interesting but accurate self-concept. <laughs> he says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. He shall eat at my table regularly. And then verse 11. Let's move on to the next. So Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. Now catch this, the next part of that verse. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons.
It's stories like this that so confirm and strengthen my confidence that God's book is God's book because the parallels to the gospel here, brothers and sisters, they are extraordinary. Do you see how Mephi is a picture of us, enemies of God, pitiful, sin-crippled creatures. He would not dare approach the king, but the king comes after him. The king seeks after this dead dog. The king chooses him, predestines him to become what? To become like one of his sons, to enjoy the riches of the palace. And, and here's what I would have you see in this story. Why did David receive Mephibosheth? Why did David show favor to this dead dog and seat him at his own table with his own sons? The answer is found in verse 1 and verse 7 of Ephesians and in 2 Samuel chapter 9 as well. He did it for Jonathan's sake. It wasn't because Mephi was good. It wasn't even because Mephi was disabled. It was because he was in Jonathan. He was related to him, and it is exactly like that for Christians. Dead dogs that we were. We are sought out by the king. We are adopted into his family. We are seated at his table because we are in Christ and connected by faith to the beloved one, and that seems plenty enough, <laughs> plenty enough to make us ready to sing with grateful hearts to our Father this morning and for all eternity. Consider what God has saved us from. Consider what God has saved us to. And he invites everyone who by faith is in Christ to come and sit with him at his table where we enjoy what? the riches of our Father's house, the sweetness of our Father's presence, and the beauty of our Father's smile in the presence of our big brother who made this dream come true. Let's pray. Our God and Father, what can we do except say thank you and lay our lives down before you? What riches of grace are now ours? Inflate our hearts, Lord, to be able to receive this, to be able to grasp it, to be able to appreciate the breadth and length and height and depth of your fatherly love. Thrill us today and enable us, Lord, to leave here more fully convinced that we are yours. The riches of your palace are ours and we are your servants, sons and daughters, forever. May you stamp the family likeness deep upon us, and then give us grace, Lord, to go forth from here, to shine forth your love, and to express the love you have for us toward those around us who can bring us nothing, who have nothing to attract us to them, but who need you. We thank you that we get to sing of your love, your fatherly love forever. Amen.